Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. This next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do, a time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, my partner Ravinder is here in the studio with me, perfectly willing to be uncertain for for a lifetime, she says. So, Ravinder, say hello to everyone, share your special insight of the day, and please tell everyone how they can learn more about our show. Well, hello, everyone. Yeah, I don't know about willing to be uncertain. I think I just am uncertain. <laughs> yeah. It's it's an interesting life, but it leaves me open to learning more stuff, and I like learning more stuff. Um, if you want to learn more about the show, you can always go to the ProvocativeEnlightenment.com website and where you can come across all of our archives. You know, we've been on the air now for, how long has it been? 11, 12 years? Yep. So we've got quite a great deal of material there, and we've had some fabulous guests. So that Actually is longer. Sorry, didn't mean to cut you yeah, off. Yeah, I'm going to have to calculate that. So, yeah, do come um, come check out the website and then also come look at the Facebook page that we have. Any information that is given out on the air, you know, any additional orals that the guests may give or anything like that, I try to uh, put that up in on the Facebook page. So if there's something that you don't quite get or you miss, um Go check it out. So just search for Provocative Enlightenment Radio on Facebook. You, you should tell everybody about the YouTube channel. Yeah, we have a YouTube channel as well, don't we? We do. We have all of the shows up there. So, uh, yep, once again, just do a search for Provocative Enlightenment Radio and you'll see uh, all the shows there. So you can basically choose your preferred format. You can subscribe to a podcast. You can just come visit our website when you feel like. You can subscribe to YouTube. We have a great deal of information out there. And as I said, we've had some really good guests and it's uh, it's worth you going back and playing some of the older shows too. I agree. All right. In this week's spotlight, I want to discuss the idea that service may be our best path to owning self-worth. For years, I've shared what I call the four corners philosophy. In short, the four corners are designed to improve our quality of life, and they include self-responsibility, gratitude, forgiveness, and service. Three of these principles are very well researched, but there's also plenty of research that suggests the power behind service. When I speak about service, I think of it this way. What is it that I can do every day that may improve the life of another. Years ago, I saw a client who was referred to me due to her practices of self-mutilation and suicidal history. For this person, life had little meaning because she had little worth. There were special circumstances that made her feel like she didn't deserve to live. But the circumstances do not delimit the value of the lesson she can teach us all. 
So please allow me to share her story. I will give her a fictitious name, say Kathy. Kathy had seen many healthcare professionals and was on a regimen of drugs. She was pretty and bright, so upon meeting her, no one was likely to guess about her inner struggle. After reviewing her initial intake information, I agreed to see her for 10 weeks, but insisted that she would have homework. She reluctantly agreed, but over the next 10 weeks, she faithfully discharged her homework, albeit at first, perhaps in a more or less perfunctory way. What was her homework? She was to do at least one good deed every day for the first week two every day for the second, and three for the third week, and so on. She was to keep a personal journal where every evening at bedtime she was to record her daily good deeds and reflect on how they made her feel. She was to bring the journal in with her each week during our time together, and we often discussed her journal entries. Ten weeks later, Kathy was a different person. She discovered just how important she was. Helping others often rewards us with a true sense of self-esteem, a a sense of well-being, a sense of purpose, for we genuinely discover that our lives can and do matter. As a result of finding value and meaning to her life, she abandoned all ideas of suicide and or self-mutilation. Our competitive society teaches us that our worth is in the things we own, the awards we win, the education we earn, our position in life, and so forth. The fact is, there is always someone that others may measure as more important or more valuable than us, and we do the measuring as well. That said, this may be why Kathy's lesson is all for us. To the precise extent that we are able to assist others along the path of life, our life gains both value and meaning. I often refer to the reward one feels when they are able to go to the aid of another who needs it as the warm, fuzzy feeling. This warm, fuzzy feeling informs us that we are hardwired to help others, and that's why our neurochemicals reward us. In other words, the brain is hardwired in such a way that the reward centers in the brain release feel-good neurochemicals, such as oxytocin, as a result of helping others. For what it's worth, if you feel down, unworthy, hopeless, depressed, and so forth, go find someone else to help. Service to others, it turns out, is indeed service to ourselves. Those are my thoughts. And as always, I welcome yours. How about you, Ravinder? What do you think? You know, I really like that story. That um, that form of therapy is pretty genius, actually, I think. Because, um, I mean, I'm familiar with the story. I'm familiar with the individual that you're talking about. So I'm very aware of the difference it made in their life. Um, I think this whole... If you have this philosophy of working every... <clears throat> excuse me. Working every day to be kind to other people that those warm fuzzy feelings it just improves the quality of life you look at the whole um industry when it comes to self-improvement personal empowerment everything else you know it's huge but the solution that you have to improve your life today is just go be nice to someone else and it does make a difference and it adds up a little bit at a time and it 
Yeah. Your health will improve. Your mental awareness will improve. Just everything will improve. And then you'll find everything else just kind of fits into place. Well, we kind of have a cult of self-esteem. And and that cult tends to weigh um, what we accomplish in life. And the accomplishment is, for all intent and purposes, measured on a selfish level, on a competitive level. Competitive. And... uh, And, you know, uh, again, uh, you can't win all the competition. I remember my dad saying to me once upon a time, it doesn't matter how tough you are, there's somebody tougher. Yeah. Always remember that. Yeah. You know, there's always somebody smarter, always somebody better looking, always somebody on and on and on and on. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Our last show featured Professor Pavan Dingra, and we discussed his book, Hypereducation, Why Good Schools, Good Grades, and Good Behavior Are Not Enough. Nathan wrote, I liked your guess, but he contradicted himself. If public schools are doing so well, why are private schools doing better? If private schools are doing better and are a threat to public schools, then why won't improvements to public schools work? It seems that he wants to defend public schools and say nothing is wrong with our educational system and then point to international data and show us that private school students score well against other countries while public school students score poorly. Actually, that's a pretty good point, and that's something you and I discussed after the show as well. It is. Candace wrote, I agree with Professor Dingra. There is way too much competition creating so much extra stress on our kids today. Moving on, Dudley wrote, I'm currently using your product and I can feel changes taking place. It's a journey, but I feel that I'm on the right path with your products. I bought the Eliminating Self-Sabotage series from a fundraiser for the radio station WBAI in New York. I remember that fundraiser. That was a very successful fundraiser. It was. Francisco wrote, please pass my greetings to Dr. Taylor and congratulations for putting all the time and effort into these programs to help us improve our life. Well, thank you, Francisco, and and thank you, all of you. That's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but please keep your comments coming. We sincerely appreciate your feedback. You can opine by sending me an email at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. Now to today's show, Self-Compassion, the Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself with Professor Kristen Neff. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Dr. Kristen Neff is currently an Associate Professor of Educational Psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. She is a pioneer in the field of self-compassion research, conducting the first empirical studies on self-compassion over 15 years ago. In conjunction with her colleague, Dr. Chris Germer, she has developed an empirically supported training program called Mindful Self-Compassion, which is taught by thousands of teachers worldwide. So on that, let's get her in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Kristen Neff. Hello, Eldon. Can I call you Eldon? But pretty please. Can you call me Kristen then? If you'd like me to, I'll be happy to. I would like to, to, actually. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) All right, well, listen, Kristen, uh, if I revert, by the way, it's only because of 
you know, too many years of training. But we <laughs> like fun. to learn three things from our guests on this show. What is the message? Who is the messenger? And how do we use the information? To that end, please share with us what you're passionate about and why. Ah, well, that that's an easy one. I'm passionate about self-compassion. It's really it's really my life's work, um, and it's become a burgeoning field of research. There are over three thousand studies currently showing the benefits of self-compassion for uh, mental health, for physical well-being. It's like this uh, it's like the superpower that we have in our back pocket, and we just don't know how to take it out and use it. Uh, and it's something that we can teach to others. It's a learnable skill. It's not rocket science. And it makes a dramatic difference in people's life. And it kind of actually relates to what you talked about in your opening segment. It's it's really an alternative to self-esteem in terms of feeling good about ourselves, in terms of feeling worthy. Um, and it's, it's not based on feeling better than others. It's not based on being successful or achievement. It's simply based on the recognition that we are an imperfect human being that all people are imperfect human beings, um, that we all suffer, we all struggle. And because of that, that we all need to give ourselves some kindness and some understanding and some support. Again, it's, it's, it's really not based on a sense of separate self. It's actually based on a sense of connected self. The, the word compassion in the Latin, the, uh, passion means to suffer, but come means with. And so when we're with ourselves and when we struggle, in the same way that we're with our friends or loved ones or other people, when we aren't so, when we don't take our own suffering so personally or our own failure so personally, we're connected with ourselves, um, it gives us a stable source of self-worth that doesn't require being better than anyone. You just have to be a flawed human being like everyone else. I can check that box. Uh, you know, before we get into your book, and I loved your book, and, and I love the way you tell a story in your book. Um it is very readable, and I think, you know, all of us should read the book regardless of what we think of ourselves in terms of compassion or esteem. And and, and in a bit, we'll, we'll maybe deal a little bit with how those two uh, can conflict with each other. But before we get into all that, I want everyone to know about your self-compassion test, something they can jump out there on the Internet and take. So... Before we start our discussion, please tell everyone where they can take this test and a little about the research behind it. Yeah, um, so you can take the self-compassion test um, by going to my website. If you just Google self-compassion, you'll find me. Um, I, I got in early. I was one of the first people to actually use the term, at least in a scientific context. So I've, so I've got the website and um, you'll, you'll find me easily. And so actually, well, I didn't invent the idea of self-compassion, certainly. I actually learned about it in, a, in my mindfulness meditation practice. And a lot of people from the tradition of Buddhism, um, I, I don't think it's you know, only in Buddhism, but it's talked about explicitly in Buddhism, they talk about the fact that, well, if self and other are really interconnected, it doesn't make sense the way we're kind and compassionate to others and we beat ourselves up all the time. We, you know, we, we've, got a, we've got a neurotic relationship with ourselves. We want to feel special and above average, and yet we always beat ourselves up. So we just don't, we don't know what to think. And so the idea from, from the perspective of self and other are interconnected, it means, well, your compassion has to include yourself. It doesn't make sense not to include yourself. 
So so I actually started practicing self-compassion when I learned meditation. And it just, I was going through a very stressful time in my life and it just made a dramatic difference in my ability to cope with what I was going through. And then I, I, I got a job as a professor. I was just out of grad school and I wanted to conduct research on it and no one had really done that scientifically. So I thought, well, I guess the way to start is I'll create a scale to measure self-compassion and see if people who score higher on the scale have better outcomes in terms like less depression, anxiety, more happiness, et cetera. So yeah, I created the scale almost 20 years ago. Um, and now there's you know probably almost 3,000 studies on self-compassion, not all of which use the scale, but probably most of them do. So it's just a way of assessing you know, habitually um, really the three components of self-compassion and there, there are three parts one is being kind to yourself but also we need to be you know mindfully aware of when we're struggling right we can't just put our head in the sands and not recognize oh, I, I, I feel bad about failing or I feel you know I'm having difficulty we have to be aware that we're suffering and then really importantly the, what makes it not be self-pity is we need to remember hey it's not just me this is part of being human everyone's imperfect everyone struggles and then when we're kind, we remember common humanity, we're mindful, according to my test. And if you take the test, it'll give you a readout in each of those areas. And then combine that, that creates, that assesses your level of self-compassion. And uh, the research is pretty overwhelming in terms of the benefits it gives us, especially our, our personal mental health benefits. Okay, as a follow-up question, because you, you sort of introduced this. And I'll get to your direct questions on the book in a minute. But first, I have a couple that I think can place some context on you as well as okay. your work. Your son, Rowan, presented yes. you with some serious challenges. And I understand that you deployed the skills you teach to aid yourself in dealing with this situation. Please unpack this story for us. Yeah, so my son Rowan is autistic, um, and and by the way, he's he's all grown now. He's 18. He flew to England by himself. He just got his driver's license, so he's doing amazing. So those of you who are autism parents, you know, it's really you know these kids are great. I love him to death. But when he was younger, he had some challenging behaviors. He wasn't toilet trained until he was five. Um, he used to have these, you know, terrible ear splitting tantrums when he would get upset. He, you know, he had he was delayed in learning to speak and he couldn't communicate. Um, and so, actually, luckily, I had started my self compassion practice before I had Rowan, um, and it, it absolutely not only helped me cope with the stresses of being an autism parent, especially in the early years. It also really helped me, I know for sure, be a much better parent and more loving and accepting parent toward Rowan. Um, and so the way, the way it worked is, you know, first of all, when I got his diagnosis, when I got his diagnosis, I was actually set to go on a meditation retreat. And what I did is I just allowed myself to feel all the feelings that came up, feelings I thought, you know, I shouldn't have, like feelings like disappointment, you know, and, and you feel like you love this child and you find out they're they're autistic and you feel like I'm not supposed to be disappointed and yet you are you know so I just let myself feel those feelings and the fear and all that all that uncomfortable feelings that came up and I just would kind of flood myself with compassion I would you know validate yeah this is hard um, I'd remember that you know I'm not alone first of all autism itself is prevalent but you know every parent has some sort of challenge with their kids if it's not autism could be another mental health issue or physical issue or, or at the very least, you know, conflict, difficulty. That's part of being a parent. So 
So I'd remind myself of my uh, common humanity. And I just gave myself a lot of kindness and support and, you know, just kind of let myself know that I cared and I would be there for myself. I wouldn't, I wouldn't abandon myself in my quest to help my son. I would also be there for myself, especially when things were difficult for me. And then I found that when I, whenever I did that, um, I just had so much more resources to give to Rowan. I was more present with him. Um, I was, you know, when he interacted with me, he wasn't interacting with like a depressed, frustrated mother. He was interacting with like a resourced, uh, fulfilled, loving mother toward her, toward herself, and then he could pick up on that. So, you know, the idea that self-compassion is selfish is a complete misunderstanding because, you know, we're always interacting with others. The way we, well, the way we interact with ourselves influences others, just like they influence us. So the kinder we can be to ourselves, actually the kinder we can be toward others. All right. So much of who and what we are by way of how we choose to live is based on subconscious predispositions. Yes. Uh, Some of our inner subconscious beliefs manifest for us in the way we talk to ourselves, Kristen. Yes. You've, You've outlined earlier three constructs that define what you mean by self-compassion. That said, you argue that self-criticism can potentially lead to giving up or denying our failures. And you ask the question, who wants to be invalidated by the voice in their own head? What are some of the ways you suggest for training our self-talk to be more supportive of our conscious desires? Well, luckily, self-compassion isn't rocket science, which is, I think, one of the reasons it's becoming so popular. You know, you don't have to meditate, sit on the cushion for 30 minutes a day to learn how to be self-compassionate. It actually will help you. It's a valid way to do it, but it's not necessary. And the reason that is, is because most of us have already developed skills of being compassionate. Usually we have someone we care about in our lives. Maybe it's a partner or a child or a close friend you know, and they come to us and they're upset, we know um, what types of things to say, to be reassuring, to let people know we care. Uh, We know how to hold our body. You know, maybe we hold the person's hand or kind of soften our body stance. We know how to use a warm, caring tone of voice. You know, so we know how to communicate care and compassion and support. And so all we really need to do to give ourselves compassion in terms of saying supportive kind things to ourselves you simply think, well, what if someone I really cared about had the exact same experience I just had? <laughs> you know, what would I naturally say to them? And then, then more often than not, I mean, not always, but typically it like lets us know what to say and how to say it. And then we try it out. And, you know, and I'll be honest, it feels it feels a little awkward at first. It feels a little awkward saying things like, you know, I'm so sorry. This is so hard. I'm here for you. But it's only awkward because we aren't used to it, because we're actually very comfortable saying, you stupid fool. You know? So we talk to ourselves all the time. We just don't notice it. And so it feels a little awkward at first to, to talk to ourselves like a supportive friend. But eventually we do get used to it. And again, it, it can be very transformative. So much of what we say to ourselves, though, Professor, is like, um, you know, and indeed, I've lectured on many occasions about this stream of consciousness, as William James called it. Uh, our, our self-talk as being yeah. perhaps a mirror on what we, you know, genuinely believe. Whether we should believe it or not is irrelevant. So you might ask somebody to say to themselves um, sincerely, quietly, in their form of self, uh, 
self-talk, self-expression, I am good. And invariably, they'll get some uh, talk back. Sure, good at what? What do you mean by good? Well, maybe you're good. And so my, my question is really, as you're dealing with these, as you're changing your dialogue, is it true that you need to be prepared for the kind of talk back that I just suggested that will work mm-hmm. at mitigating these positive affirmations that you're intaking? And, and if that's true, is it a matter of just numbers, staying at it? Is it a matter of mindfulness, allowing it to go? Please. Yeah, so actually, I think think you're confusing positive affirmations with self-compassion. We actually don't encourage people to use positive affirmations precisely because of that blowback. In fact, research shows that positive affirmations work if you have high self-esteem, but they actually don't work, and they can actually be unproductive if you have low self-esteem precisely because of what you're talking about. And so the idea is not to say, I'm good or I'm worthy, because you aren't going to believe it. It, it, It's quite the opposite. It's saying, yeah, so there's ways in which I'm not good. There's ways in which I'm flawed. There's there's many ways in which I'm unperfect. And all people are imperfect. It's not just me. My value doesn't come from, you know, achieving certain goals. My value comes simply from being um, a human being who's intrinsically worthy of kindness. One one of the uh, slogans we like to use in our Mindful Self-Compassion program is, you know, the goal of practice is simply to become a compassionate mess. You you can still be a mess. (laughs) You can still be a mess. You can still be flawed. You can still make mistakes. I mean, obviously, if you care, you try your best to improve. You wouldn't, of course, if you care. But yet, ultimately, the goal is simply to hold whatever the the messy reality is with compassion. And if that's your goal, then you can actually always succeed. You know, yeah, I'm bad. And can I care about myself, even though I've got some aspects that are bad? And of course, you know, what, what happens, we say I am bad, we're falling into all sorts of traps, like we're all one way and we're always permanently this way. And, and mindfulness tells us that's not true. You know, sometimes we have moments where we do bad things, we have moments where we do good things, we go up and down. And also it lets us know that, hey, this stuff that happens, most of it's not under my control. I didn't choose my genes, I didn't choose my parents, I didn't choose my culture. You know, we can make, we have some influence, but it's certainly not within our control. And so compassion, we can hold all of that complexity with an open heart, you know. And and so, and the open heart isn't contingent on being a certain way. You don't have to earn access to the open heart. That This open heart, in some ways, it kind of becomes transcendent. It's bigger than our small selves. And we tap into this, this feeling, you know, um, William James called it the oceanic feeling. We tap into that, which is a loving feeling, and we include ourselves in this ocean of compassion. And then we can give ourselves what we need, even if we think, you know, we didn't do very well. That, that's actually, that's a key difference between self-compassion and self-esteem. Self-esteem is a fair weather friend. You know, it's there for us on a good day and it deserts us on a bad day. That's precisely when self-compassion steps in. You know, yeah, you failed. Yeah, you made a mistake. It's okay. Everyone makes a mistake. And when we do that, that, you know, people think, oh, that means they won't take responsibility. Exactly the opposite is true. It allows us to own up to what we've done. 
okay, I made a mistake. And then what the research shows is it actually allows you to take more personal responsibility because you don't have to defend your ego. Okay, I made a mistake. And it prompts you to try to repair the mistake because it allows you to still care. You know, shame shuts everything down. When we shame ourselves, we just shut down. We can't do anything. We aren't helpful to anyone. Compassion opens us up, not only to ourselves, but also to others. Wonderfully well explained. I don't know that I would encourage someone to say, I am bad. Maybe no, I can do better, not, but, but, but I get it. If that thought comes up, we can include that. It's not like, right. you know, you know, it, it's a whole mess. I love compassionate mess because we are all a mess, aren't we? Some of us are messier than others, but we're all, every single <laughs> one of us is a mess. And if your goal is just to be a compassionate mess, to hold Whatever it is arising for you with kindness, with support, trying your best, you know, you'll fail and you pick yourself up and you try again. Then that when that is the goal, that is an achievable goal and it actually will allow you to succeed more often. You know, the, the irony is, you know, uh, uh, Carl Rogers, you, I'm sure you know this, the curious paradox is uh, the more I accept myself, the more I can change. Amen. All right. We're speaking with Professor Kristen Neff about her work and book. Self-compassion, the proven power of being kind to yourself. As I say, get a copy of the book. It's a great book. You can learn more about our guest in her work and books by visiting selfcompassion, self-compassion.org. Okay, do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Many dogs and cats spend endless days indoors staring at the wall, living for the moment when you will come home and tell them you love them, take them out, and make a fuss over them. Dogs and cats need physical exercise and mental stimulation, things to do and think about in order to be healthy and happy. Please, set time aside for them and give them a real life and real love. For more information, please contact People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals at 757-622-PETA or HelpingAnimals.com. That's HelpingAnimals.com. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra-prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used Inner Talk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your Inner Talk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com. A silent battle has been raging for the territory of your mind. Like a virulent virus, the effects are spreading. In Gotcha, Eldon Taylor explores the 24-7 bombardment of information designed to manage your thinking. He demonstrates how new sound bites are championed into personal awareness, becoming memes of the culture. And this results in framing and reframing classical positions, causing adjustments to personal values and history itself. Your every decision process is being managed and manipulated. 
Gotcha exposes the arrival of the Orwellian age in full-blown technicolor. In laying bare the current uses of the many sophisticated techniques, Eldon reveals what it is we need to do in order to avoid allowing others to puppet our thoughts. For details, go to eldentaylor.com backslash gotcha. The great courses cover a broad array of university-level disciplines. The lectures in each course are either 30 or 45 minutes long. By listening for less than an hour a day, you can finish even the longest course in just weeks. Browse our catalog or website at thegreatcourses.com and imagine how much you could learn if you spent just 30 minutes a day for the next year in the best college classrooms in the world. The lecturers are university professors carefully selected by the great courses and its customers for intellectual distinction and teaching excellence. Hi, this is Bill Marp. I can find humor in almost anything, but one thing I never laugh about is cruelty to animals. If you don't get the joke either, write People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, 501 Front Street, Norfolk, Virginia, 23510. New scientific research has repeatedly demonstrated that the power of your mind can do wonderful things if you believe in yourself. Indeed, it can literally change the brain, increasing cognitive abilities, rewiring connections, and even adding gray matter. And all you have to do is invest a little time in tuning your mind. The perfect toolkit for just that is the patented and proven effective InnerTalk technology. InnerTalk changes the way you talk to yourself and that changes everything. For when you truly believe in yourself and your own abilities, magic happens. InnerTalk has over 300 programs to choose from, ranging from health and wellness to prosperity and success. From accelerated learning to relationships. From habits and addictions to spirituality. Remove the doubt and fear now. Go to InnerTalk.com today. Hi, I'm Peter Singer. Many people would like to help those in great need in developing countries, but they don't really know whether a donation will do good. They wonder if the money will get to the people who need it. Now you can find the best organizations by going to www.thelifeyoucansave.org and clicking on Where to Donate. The Life You Can Save doesn't take any money from the organizations it recommends. It's simply trying to do the best it can. Thank you. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. Whisper words of wisdom, let it be. 
Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Kristen Neff about her work and book, Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself. You can learn more about our guest and her work and books by visiting selfcompassion.org. Self-compassion is hyphenated, self-compassion.org. All right, every week we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some real meaning to them. By now you know music psychology is a field of research that I have particular interest in, and it has practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. Your chosen music professor is Let It Be by the Beatles. So please tell us, why is this music important to you? And more importantly, how does it inform us about who you are? Uh, Well, yeah, I got chills just hearing it again. But I think for me, it's just because it it ties in. I mean, that is a self-compassion song. I mean, it's, you know, just the tone in his voice. And he's obviously talking about some difficult time of suffering and and for me, the Mother Mary is the love, you know, um, Mother Mary, Jesus, sources of love. And when we give ourselves love, unconditional love and kind of this acceptance that we don't have to fight things, we don't have to fight ourselves, we can just open to what is, but we open to what is with great love. It's, it's just such a powerful message. And, you know, I, I can teach a six hour workshop on the topic and someone may get more get the message more clearly by listening to that little clip of the song because you're right music can be such a powerful communicator um yeah so i I like yeah it's a good song but also it's just um it's so meaningful that's why i really love it all right duly noted uh now i want to follow up uh on a question if you will um Something you said just before we went to the break, and this is a bit of a tongue-in-cheek question, so please don't take it long, wrong, Christine. But, okay. Uh, you know, you said, I am bad. What are the costs of harsh judgment when we talk to ourselves that way? Right. Well, so, I mean, obviously, uh, when we say things to and I'm, I, you know, and... I mean, obviously, you understood the context too. Because some things we aren't good at, some things we are bad at. But we, you know, we aren't bad. We should never define ourselves as bad. But um, recognizing our complexity is really important. And so, what happens when we when we do sum ourselves up as if you know maybe I did something bad, which is actually the more accurate statement to say that because I did something bad and therefore I am bad. Um, we all have this huge mental health consequences. So we know that that sort of self-judgment, um, and especially when it's combined with rumination, with those when those thoughts are repeated over and over again, um, yeah, it leads to depression, it leads to anxiety, um, it leads to finally things like you know attempts at suicide to put us to put ourselves out of our pain. Um, and it also leads to you know physical stress because what happens is when we're when we're thinking that we're inadequate, we feel really threatened, we feel really unsafe, which means our um, our sympathetic nervous system is activated. You know we have like cortisol and adrenaline. We can't calm down, and that can lead to things like uh, high blood pressure or hypertension. So so the consequences are are very re- real. And one of the ways I actually though I actually teach people to work with the inner critic is by having compassion for it, right? So this is a part of us that's just trying to keep us safe, right? It's somehow, it's trying to 
think that, you know, maybe if I did something different, I would be safe. I would get it right. I wouldn't make a mistake. Other people would, wouldn't reject me. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a very kind of innocent attempt, kind of maybe a more young, <laughs> a younger part of us. It's an innocent attempt to try to stay safe, to try to get things right. You know, and ultimately, if you unpack why are why we why we are self-critical, it's actually because we're trying to help ourselves and keep ourselves safe. And so, the best way that I found to work with self-criticism is to give compassion to it. Oh, okay, I hear you. I see this voice. This is trying to keep me safe because it cares. Well, you know, thank you, and I actually teach people thank they thank the inner critic for its efforts to keep us safe. Um, but then, you know, once the, once that part of us feels heard, then we can let in other voices that are more compassionate. Like we have other ways to keep ourselves safe, and that's by feeling connected, by feeling loved, by feeling supported. And we can actually give those feelings to ourselves, and it's kind of an alternate way to feel safe, which ultimately is a lot more effective in the long run. You know, but we don't want to beat ourselves up for beating ourselves up. That's not helpful either. <laughs> Okay, so I, I want to make sure I understand what you said. Um, when we talk to ourselves, we want to talk to ourselves honestly, admit yeah. what limitation or how, whatever terminology we want to put on it. That human feeling. <laughs> Go ahead. No, admit our humanness. Right. That's yeah. a non-judgmental. That's <laughs> OK. Good. Let's we'll, we'll go with that word, uh, okay. assuming we all make mistakes. So which we do. Uh, but at the same time, we want to do that in a gentle fashion. Have I got that correct? Well, yes, yeah, actually a little more complex. So my latest work has been talking about what I call the yin and the yang sides of self-compassion. Mm-hmm. And so the, the the gentle yin side, so in Chinese philosophy, yin is more the gentle, receptive, accepting energy, and the yang is the more powerful, hard, kind of forceful energy. And we actually need both. It is a dialectic. One without the other is incomplete. So the, the gentle yin acceptance is absolutely key to like give us the bottom line of we accept ourselves as we are, you know, we love ourselves, we're going to support ourselves. And yet, it's not really loving or helpful if we're engaging in behaviors that are harmful to ourselves and others. We aren't helping to alleviate our suffering if we just become complacent. So sometimes self-compassion is kind of, it's like a coach, you know, like a, a coach that like criticizes you and says, you're crap, that's not good enough. Well, it may kind of help you play better, but it's probably going to cause so much anxiety. It may actually decrease your ability to perform at your best. But a coach, you might say, hey, I know you can do better. I believe in you. Here's how we, you know, really supportive, like encouragement. I believe in you. This isn't this isn't right now, but here's how we make it better. But coming from a place of care and support, that's actually more effective. So sometimes the voice, it's, it's not, it's never harsh, a compassionate voice, but sometimes it's like, it's like fierce, it's firm. It's like, hey, we got to do something different. You got to leave this relationship. You have to stop using these drugs or whatever it is. It can be firm. Just like with a child sometimes, if we're, we're protecting our child, we, have to, we don't want to just say, oh, sweetie, you're about to be hit by a car. You know, it's like, get out of the way, no! You know, um, but, it, but it's not from a place of because you're crap, it's from a place of because I love you. And that's the whole difference. And so, so gentleness, it's part of the picture, but it's not always actually what we need to hear to, to, to be good to ourselves. So the yin and the yang. Yeah. I've done something I'm ashamed of. And I go after myself over that, and then I concede that, well, you know, it's human. 
everybody makes mistakes, I'll do better, uh, and I accept myself. And doesn't that in some way give rise to a self-indulgent attitude? Well, if I do it wrong again tomorrow, I can forgive myself anyway? Well, it actually doesn't. The research shows it's the exact opposite, okay? And so here's the thing. If there there was just the self-acceptance and no care about our well-being, so, so right, so if self-indulgence was actually good for our well-being, then maybe that'd be a different story, but it's not, right? The reason self-indulgence and complacency is not helpful does not help alleviate our suffering. And remember, compassion, one of the formal scientific definitions of compassion is concern with the alleviation of suffering. We want to help. We want to end, you know, alleviate our suffering as much as possible. And so self-indulgence and complacency hurts us in the, in the long run. Right. And so if we care about ourselves, we will try to repair the situation. So there's this one research study where they had undergraduates like, you know, think about something they had done in the past that they were ashamed of, that maybe they harmed someone. And they had them um, think, think about this self-compassionately, right, with kindness, with mindfulness, you know, kind of recognizing what had happened, but being kind and supportive and, and remembering that it was, you know, only human. And what they found compared to people who were given like just some other control writing task is it made them, first of all, more willing to take personal responsibility to own up to, wow, that what I did was really not okay, right? Because if we're hiding in shame, we don't want to own it. So it gives us the safety to own what we've done. But because we care, because we care about ourselves, it, it actually makes us realize, hey, this, you know, this relationship is, is you know, it's not, it needs to be helped. If, if I want to help myself and I want to help others, I need to do something to repair it. So it makes us take more responsibility and be more likely to re- repair what we've done. But out of the sense of care, we wouldn't be caring about ourselves if we were just like do it, had a lazy, complacent attitude. Think about a parent who just told their kid, yeah, that's fine. Do whatever you want. I love you. Don't go to school. You as much junk food as you want. I love you, darling. That's not loving, you know. And so it's no. the same with ourselves. I got you. All right. Well, they're, they're in certain new age circles. There's. I'll put the word in quotation marks, a truism that essentially says you're right where you're supposed to be, wherever that is. Is that a form of denial or a form of self-compassion? Well, see, that's the thing. See, that's what it really is gets into this non-dualism. That's why I like the yin and yang metaphor, because it kind of helps. At least we know we all know that it's a dualism. We may not understand it. So part of this comes from um, the perspective of time, if you really want to get into it. So in the present moment, which, by the way, is the only moment there is, we really have no choice but to accept what's in this particular moment because it's the only reality that it that is. So if I fight against the fact that, you know, I've made a mistake and, you know, I just resist that reality, that's not going to help me because the fact is, it's like just the facts, ma'am. This has happened. I've made the mistake. You know, I have this behavior, whatever it is. Um, but future moments... We, we have some, we can't control how the future is going to unfold, but we can influence how the future is going to unfold by setting our intentions. So if our intention is to try to be as helpful as possible, you know, to be as kind as possible, to be as loving as possible, then that increases the chances of the future unfolding in a way that's healthier. And so we need both. We need to accept the present moment at the same time that we want to shape the unfolding future moments in a way that leads towards health and well-being. So so it really is constantly both. 
acceptance of what is at the same time that we we try to influence what will be um, but with, we have to have the humility of knowing that we, we can't control the future. You know, that's part of what being human is. It's so much more complex than us. And so th- those philosophies that talk about we're exactly where we need to be, well, in some ways, I mean, that's by definition true because if, if you, you know, if you really, if you really look at this deeply enough, the whole idea that we're separate individual selves is an illusion, right? We're part of this larger unfolding whole. You know, you, our quarks are constantly flashing in and out of existence with, you know, interchanging with other quarks. And if, if you go deeply enough, you know, it, it does start to become a spiritual practice. You start realizing that this we are just part of life unfolding. And from that perspective, we are where we need to be. And yet... Even if this is an illusion, this happens to be the movie we're in, <laughs> and we can influence the storyline somewhat by again setting our intention again and again towards support, towards kindness, towards love, towards healing, towards health, um, and then you know we do our best and then see what happens. And there you have the philosophy of self-compassion. Yeah, or at least my very philosophically of it. put, by the way. <laughs> uh, well. It is, it is a spiritual practice for me. Ultimately, it's not just psychology. It it really uh, it really ties into my whole worldview of you know who we are and what life is and what it's all about. I can tell. Uh, <laughs> I've known a few narcissists in my time, and I'm sure you have too. I have. Uh, certainly have. They seem to be full of self compassion. Not just self-esteem, at least based on uh, their own self-perspective. What's wrong with their self-perspective about self-compassion? Yeah, so so this is why self-compassion is different than, let's say, when people use the term self-love. You need common humanity in order to differentiate, for instance, self-love from, you know, self-love that's self-compassion versus self-love that's narcissism. A narcissist doesn't say, yeah, I'm an imperfect human being, you know, I'm imperfect, everyone's imperfect. A narcissist can't admit their imperfections. They're really defended against seeing their imperfections, and they're really invested in seeing themselves as superior to others. And so self-compassion. So what we know from the research is that actually, as I actually found a study. It was hard to get it published because the editor said, did you really find a 0.00 correlation with narcissism? But that's what I found. So in other words, um, self-compassion isn't negatively associated with narcissism because that, that would have to mean that people that hated themselves and had really low narcissism had higher self-compassion. They're totally orthogonal. Right. Whereas self-esteem, for instance, has quite a robust association with narcissism. And that's really, well, I think not only the common humanity, but also um, also the mindfulness. Mindfulness allows us to see things as they are, including our own flaws and imperfections. But if you were just focused on kindness, I mean, you know, so some people, I mean, it's, it's fine and I get where they're coming from. But when people just talk about be kind to yourself, love yourself, it's like, well, a narcissist is kind to themselves and loves themselves. It's not enough. And there's, a, there's all these things have a slippery slope. And that's why I think you need the all three elements of the mindfulness, which gives you the clarity of seeing, the common humanity that gives you the recognition that we're all imperfect. You know, it's not just me. And then the kindness to make it a stable mindset. Otherwise, it, yeah, it could fall into narcissism. Which, and I believe me, I know narcissists is no fun. <laughs> uh, 
I want I want to tip at your philosophical windmill for a moment, okay. uh, metaphorically. Uh, I spent a lot of my early career uh, working with uh, in prison systems with inmates uh-huh. and with criminals, period. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, some of these guys do some pretty, uh, well, not just guys, some of these people do some pretty heinous things. Yeah. As a self-compassionate person, mm-hmm. what kind of view should you have? toward someone who carries out the most heinous of crimes. Right. Well, so f- certainly as an act of self, self-compassion, you have to protect yourself. I mean, that's like, you know, you certainly don't want to. Right. Let but them, you, but you, you know, also project it, it don't inter- you? I mean, for all intent and purposes, if you have self-compassion, you must give that to other people. Right, right, yeah, yeah. So, so and so, how do you give that to someone that's carried out these heinous acts? That's my question, Prof. Yeah, and so you know, I think the way the way I would look at it, and, and of course, just to say, it's very natural to feel anger. It's even natural to feel hate. All those feelings are are normal and natural. So, I think when people hold themselves to standards that I should never feel that, or you know, intense anger, all that, that's just not human. But if you really look at, at the bigger picture, right, and I, and I do take a Buddhist perspective on this, um, although, yes, we need to, society needs to protect ourselves. People, you know, need to get their, you know, whatever the, the justice is for their crimes. They need to be prevented from harming others. But if you actually look at any one individual, once you really start to understand uh, interdependence, then you start to realize it's it's actually who who is it that there is to blame and judge because that person those criminals that you dealt with you know they didn't choose their parents they didn't choose their genetics they didn't choose their hormones maybe they've got you know too much testosterone or something like that that makes them aggressive they didn't they were probably came from abusive households most people you know do they may have come from poverty or you know sometimes you get like a Ted Bundy where none of that's true but he was just a psychopath so he but he didn't choose his brain right so the idea that there is a separate individual self that has full control over their thoughts, their emotions, their actions. It's just, it's just not true. It's not scientifically true. And so I think once you understand that, that it allows you to have compassion in the sense that we can absolutely judge the deeds as heinous. We can protect ourselves from them. We can, you know, um, feel the t- tremendous. One of the things compassion can do is help you hold the pain of something like that because the pain feels absolutely overwhelming. And sometimes I think, you know, judgment is almost a way of protecting ourselves from the opening to the pain of what's happened, which it feels like it's going to tear us apart. And you need a lot of compassion to be able to hold that pain. But it is, you know, it's definitely possible to feel compassion for someone in terms of this is a consciousness that's experiencing life in this particular way. At the same time, but that doesn't mean, you know, idiot, as Trump, Trump Rinpoche calls, I think calls it um, idiot compassion, where you just say, okay, fine, let him out of prison. You know, it's not his fault. I hate you cutting know? you off, Kristen, That's because fine. I love just talking to you. <laughs> but we're we're coming to the end of the show, okay. uh, and I want to I want to thank you very much for your work. Uh, and once again, I want to recommend it to all of our listeners out there. The book is Self Compassion. Uh, this is Professor Kristen Neff. She her book is as delightful as she is. If you've been listening to her, you must have been as charmed as I am. Oh. All right. 
We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show. We'll join us again next week, same time, same place. Until then, remember, wherever you are in the world, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.